Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I cannot believe I have this next guest on. One of the pleasures of having a podcast is having incredible guests that I've really admired. This guy I've admired for almost 30 years. He's a great physicist and a great novelist, both. And I also admire people who have more than one career and more than one passion that they've been able to pursue. Alan Lightman definitely falls under that category. I remember reading his book, Einstein's Dreams, in 1993, I think it was. And I've read some of his physics books. I would say this book is in the physics category, but it's just amazing to me, A, what a talented writer he is, B, how important it is to express yourself in terms of questions. Having good questions is truly a sign of intelligence, of creativity, of humility, and the ability to accomplish great things. And his recent book, Probable Impossibilities, basically questions all the things that we kind of know are impossible, but maybe we can take a good guess what was around before the universe began. You know, how does consciousness exist? And you might think, oh, well, these are dumb questions. It's not as important, like, how do we solve global warming? But it's Trust me when I say it's really great practice. It trains your brain. It makes you feel good. And it makes you smarter when you tackle some of these impossible questions. And so I love talking with Alan Lightman. Again, I've been a fan of his for 30 years. And uh, meeting your idols is everything it's cracked up to be. So without further ado, Alan Lightman, physicist and writer extraordinaire. First, I want to say what a pleasure it is having you here. I distinctly remember back in either 1993 or 1994, sometime in the early 90s, reading your excellent novel slash collection of stories, Einstein's Dreams, which was a best-selling book. And also, we're here to talk about your book that just came out, Probable Impossibilities, which is also a, a collection of essays discussing everything from nothingness to consciousness to infinity to how the universe was born to what happened before the universe was born, all sorts of interesting essays. And you're one of the few people who've really built an amazing career, both in science and in physics, where you were a professor at Cornell, right? Astrophysics and MIT. And now you're a professor of humanities at MIT where you teach writing, but I'm I'm sure you're involved in many science things as well there. So you're a physicist, writer. Before we start talking about probable impossibilities, how did you decide to go full force into two separate careers? It's very hard to have two careers. And I know you get must that, get asked this question a lot, but this is a favorite topic of mine. When I was very young, and not say eight or nine or 10 years old, I was interested in both writing stories and doing science experiments. And then when I got into high school, I was, I had two groups of friends. I had 
the literary friends who liked ambiguity and worked on the school magazine. Then I had the, the science friends who, who relished their math homework at night and liked definite answers to questions. And I had these two groups of friends and I never thought it was unusual to have two separate groups of friends. I only realized that that was unusual later on. So the the dual interest in both the sciences and the humanities slash arts began for me at a young age. Did anyone ever tell you, like when you started uh, Einstein's Dreams, for instance, which became essentially your, your breakout book, that's the book that p first put you on, let's say the global map. Um, did anyone tell you, Alan, what are you doing? You're a physicist, you should be writing papers and trying to win the Nobel prize. Why are you, every moment you spend writing this novel, you could be working on proving, uh, yeah, something greater than the theory of relativity, the next theory yeah. of relativity. Well, I, I certainly knew by that age that I wasn't going to win the Nobel Prize. I, I did get uh, a little bit of pushback from some people. My parents were worried that that I wasn't going to be able to make a living as a writer. They I mean, they respected my literary interests, but uh, when it was clear that I was drifting over towards the dark side of the forest, they had some practical concerns. When I started my writing career in a professional sense, as I mentioned, I, I did start writing when I was very young, but when I started writing professionally, probably early 1980s, I was very respectful of science. I was not portraying science in a spectacular, exaggerated form. So I think that I, because of that reason, I was not hyping science or using a lot of purple prose to describe science that, that my scientific colleagues were accepting of my coming out of the closet as a writer. Maybe because like you weren't necessarily writing pop science, which many people do when they want to kind of break out into the mainstream. I mean, your first breakout book, Einstein's Dreams, was packaged as a novel. And even though it touches on science, you know, Einstein essentially writing these stories, it's almost like an expansion of Einstein's thought experiments, which he's known for. You take them to an extreme and it's a beautiful book. And I think maybe the deep understanding of physics and the deep pursuit of writing that has engaged you since you were a kid, it almost gave you permission to dive into these theories without the pressure of calling it a science book. Well, that, that may have been. I mean, I never thought of, of Einstein's dreams as a science book. I, I always thought it as a literary work. No doubt my scientific background has something to do with it. But I, when I was writing the book, I consciously avoided making it a science book, avoided having logical consistency in the various dream worlds that I was concocting. What do you mean avoided having logical consistency? What I could have done is, is each time I posed a new world in which time behaved in a certain way, I could have followed that out from a physics point of view mm. and looked to see whether it was really possible and whether the laws of physics would have to be modified to allow that kind of world, like time goes in a circle. 
well, wouldn't that cause a violation of the second law of thermodynamics of time went in a circle, that kind of thing. But if I had done that, if I'd gone that route, it would have weighed down the book. It would have become a science book and not uh, a literary book. Um, right. It almost would have been like a parable for science as opposed to its own literary yeah. piece. Was there ever a point where you said to yourself, you know what? I'm not really interested in physics anymore. I'm going full force into writing. I'm going to make this thing work. And, and that's that. Well, I never said I'm, I'm not interested in physics anymore. I have remained interested in physics, but there was a point in time that was around 1991 or 1992 when I left Harvard and joined MIT that I decided that from then on, I was going to put most of my effort into a writing career rather than a scientific career. But it wasn't because I was fed up with physics or science or was bored. It was because I had passed my peak as a scientist. Scientists do their best work when they're younger. And the area of science that I am in, theoretical physics, it is the youngest of all. Most theoretical physicists do their best work when they're in their 20s and up to the mid 30s. And when I passed that point, I realized that my powers as a physicist were declining. And yet my powers as a writer would keep increasing because it's life experiences that help you as a writer, especially as a fiction writer. And as you get older and older, you have more life experiences. You travel more, you have more love affairs, et cetera, et cetera. But those kinds of experiences don't help you as a scientist. So that's why I decided that at a certain point in time that I should put most of my marbles in my writing career and not in my science career. So there's a lot to unpack there. And I also want to tell the listeners again, you have a book that just came out, Probable Impossibilities, an excellent collection of essays, which sort of has your, your literary style, but it really is questions about science and issues about science. And it's, it's fascinating to read it from both perspectives, the writing style, which is very beautiful and story driven and the questions you raise about physics and universe and so on. Again, in those early nineties, like I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of pursuing and succeeding, having success in both careers. Do you think in a practical way, your writing career was helped by the fact that you were achieving success in the science career? Maybe not winning the Nobel prize, but you were at Harvard, you're at MIT, you were publishing papers, you were known. Were publishers willing to say, okay, this is an interesting thing about this guy. We could use this. Well, it's a great question. I think that that my writing career was helped by in my science career in terms of building my self-confidence that 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 overall I was I had a certain amount of self-confidence um it wasn't the case it was not the case that because I uh had a successful career as a scientist and had published a, a few popular science books. It was not the case that editors at publishing houses would then be willing to publish my fiction. Um, I think that the creative writing is, 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 is pretty different f 
from expository science writing. And I think I was sort of starting from scratch there with with editors and publishers. But I did have a certain amount of self-confidence uh, gained from having having had a successful scientific career. And uh, did you get many rejections for the for for, for Einstein's dreams? And again, I, I, I pick on that one because it was it, it, right. it sold millions of copies. Uh, I, I had a couple of rejections uh, from the first two publishing houses I submitted it to, but but then, you know, to get a get a book published, you only have to find one editor at one publishing house who likes the book, and it always comes down to one person, which is really amazing that it's it's the personal taste of a single individual usually that determines whether a book gets into print or not. So I guess you found that editor, did they, did this person call you and say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna publish this. And did you like F Scott Fitzgerald, did you run in front of traffic and stop cars and say, I'm gonna be published author? Well, I had published books before that, but this was the first book of fiction. And of course the editor there, Dan Frank was taking a chance but Dan is very literary and he's also philosophical and he likes originality and the originality of the book appealed to him. Ne neither he nor I nor anybody else anticipated that it would be a success. And I don't write any books either for critical acclaim or for money. I, I write books because I'm interested in them. I'm interested in the subjects and, and uh, they grab me. And uh, I think that's the case for a lot of writers. Um, so I was not really counting on the commercial or critical success of the book. And yet the critical success did allow you to keep doing both careers in the sense that you're able to write pretty much anything right now and they'll publish it because of your, your prior success. And that's often the case that if, if someone writes a, several novels, let's say that don't do well in the, in the commercial market, probably would have a hard time publishing the next novel. That's true. But you, you were able to surpass that part of the experience. That's true. As long as we're talking about that book, I'll say one more thing about it. And that is that, that one of the, the great joys and good fortunes in my life is that that book opened the door to my meeting a lot of creative people all over the world. That musicians, you know, wanted to talk to me and painters, playwrights, that I had access to a large number of creative people around the world, which was a tremendous gift. I never expected that to happen. And uh, it was all because of that, that little book. It, it was just one of the great good fortunes in my life that that, that happened. Well, what was a moment where you were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm sitting here with so-and-so because of this thing I created out of my mind? Well, I can't remember any, any single moments. There were a lot of moments like that. You know, I think that the success in anything is partly a matter of talent and partly a matter of luck. And I, I think luck does play a role. And so um, I'm just grateful for having had good luck with that book. What was the luck part? Because, you know, luck favors the prepared. Uh, well, I can tell you one lucky thing that happened. When I'd written the book, 
it hadn't been published, but was in manuscript form. I was thinking I would love to send this to some other writers that that also write in the magic realist tradition. And uh, I thought of Salman Rushdie. Mm -hmm. um, and I had read his Midnight's Children and probably another book of his. Well, the Satanic Verses at that point had just come out as well. Yeah. Of course, I didn't know Rushdie. I knew that he lived somewhere in England, I thought, but I, I knew that he was under a fatwa and you couldn't communicate with him. He was in hiding. So what I did is I, I found out who his literary agent was, who was Andrew Wiley, who lives in New York City. And I sent the manuscript to Andrew Wiley and said, could you please forward this to Salman Rushdie? And I felt like it was sending a, a note out in a bottle and at sea. I mean, I thought there was, you know, one in a zillion chances that this would get to Rushdie and then one in 10 zillion chances that he would read it. But about a month later, I got this incredible letter from Mr. Rushdie saying how much he loved the book. And that was a piece of incredible luck and good fortune that he got that book and read it. So segueing into probable impossibilities, again, it's like your imagination and literary style have free reign on all these issues that scientists have pondered for past century at least, what was the catalyst for writing this book? Because you've written also a lot about science and a lot about these issues in the past in your many books. Um, and I'll just mention a couple of books, The Accidental Universe, a beautiful book. And um, I'm, I'm, I haven't read this one, but, I'm, but I, I wasn't aware of it until recently, but I've ordered Mr. G, a novel about the creation. It sounds fascinating. And again, it sounds in that magic realist style you just mentioned. But what was the catalyst for, for this book? What did you feel you needed to get out? I've been interested in infinity for a long time, the infinitely small and the infinitely large. And it seems like in science that we're probing both the infinitely small and our giant particle accelerators and cosmology and astronomy, we're probing the infinitely large. And it seems to me that one way of finding out where our place is in the universe is to find out what's on both sides of us in both directions, uh, the infinitely large and the infinitely small. Um, so that was one impetus towards writing the book. Um, I'm also interested in where we fit into the grand scheme of things and who we are. Um, what is it that makes this special this, this collection of atoms and molecules come to life and, and be able to think and have consciousness and, and ponder these questions. I mean, how are we different from a rock? Uh, what's special about our arrangement of atoms and molecules and what's special about the brain that allows us to, to think and have emotion? And so, so I'm interested in the biological questions as well as the, 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 the physics questions. And the spiritual questions in the sense that- And the spiritual questions, yes. You know, what's the relationship between consciousness and our understanding of the universe, which you uh, uh, you know attack this issue in the, in the book somewhat? Yeah, why do we have these feelings that we're part of something larger than ourselves? And I think most of us have had those feelings at one time or another, maybe 
at night lying on your back looking up at the stars or some other experience you have, maybe watching the birth of your first child or these, these transcendent experiences that we all have. For me, there's this overpowering feeling of connection to something big. You might believe in God or you might not believe in God, but I, I don't think that either way you can still have these transcendent experiences and feel like you're connected to something larger than yourself. So that also has been a theme in the last two or three books that I've written, something I'm interested in. And I mean, a lot of these questions that you attack in the book, there is no known answers. And you even mentioned, we'll probably never know the answers. We probably won't know why we are conscious. We probably won't know what happened before the big bang. Um, so it allows you to almost play. This is where your, your, the literary style comes in very handy. It allows you to play in ways that a scientist typically won't, there's no proof. There's no ex explanation of an experiment. It doesn't have to have this academic language, but yeah. you know, you raise interesting questions like what's the nature of reality essentially. And, and you say how you, you are interested in things that are infinitely small or things that are infinitely large. And this topic's come up on the podcast a couple of times. What in the universe is actually infinite? What is an example of either infinitely big or infinitely small? Well, there are no examples. It's almost by definition. Infinite space would be space that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And if there is something infinitely large, it would be the infinite universe itself as a whole. In terms of the infinitely small, we know that as we go to smaller and smaller sizes, and we do this in our giant particle accelerators. In physics, when you go to high energy, you can probe smaller sizes. It's like getting a pair of tweezers that has a finer and finer point on the edge. It takes more and more energy to do that. We know that there's a limit to how small we can go. And that's called the Planck limit. It's named after a great physicist named Max Planck, the first quantum physicist. And when we go to a size that's 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, which is a decimal point with 32 zeros after it, and then a one centimeters, which is much, much, much smaller than the size of an atom. When you get to that size, space and time begin to rapidly fluctuate in a way that is totally different from the experience of space and time at our scales. Time fluctuates, it moves backwards and forwards, jumping around. Space is constantly appearing and dissolving. Space itself, the geometry is constantly changing and at one moment, if you draw a little triangle, the, the angles might add up to 180 degrees and another, it might be 100, 210 degrees. Everything is fluctuating very rapidly and space and time lose their meaning at this tiny scale. And even though we haven't been able to probe that scale with our giant particle accelerators, because we would take an accelerator as big as the galaxy to probe scales that small, we were able to theorize about it from our theories of quantum physics and relativity. And we know that something very, very weird happens at that scale, even though we can't get there ourselves. 
and even though you're talking about the infinitely smaller or the super small, you know, a, a decimal point followed by 32 zeros and a one, it's related to the larger question of how big's the universe? What, you know, the larger questions, because as you mentioned in the book, when things are that small, sometimes matter and energy spontaneously appear. And in the course of these random fluctuations of ghost matter just appearing, it could be enough matter suddenly appeared at one point where it created an entire new universe. Uh, universe. And yeah. so, and potentially the same thing could be happening within our universe now is that there could be small, tiny fluctuations just appearing and one might be big enough that it creates another universe that we're never really aware of because it goes off on its own, just like ours might've spun off from some other prior universe. And that seems to be one of the prevailing theories now of how our universe came into being. Yeah. And, and also as an example of infinity, even though it doesn't seem like this can be proven, you can just sort of maybe disprove every other choice, but this is a valid theory because it hasn't been disproven and it, still fits everything we know. It's, it's a valid theory. The people who invented that theory are Andre Lindy at Stanford and Alan Guth at MIT. It's called the inflationary universe model and variations of that. And even though we can't prove that's true, the inflationary universe model does make predictions about things in our universe. And it makes some predictions that have been confirmed by experiment. So there's some reason to believe that other parts of that theory, which we cannot test, might be true as well, even though we can't test them. It's like, if you see the tail of a lion sticking out from under the door, you don't see the rest of the lion, but you know what lions look like. It would be reasonable to assume that maybe there's a lion on the other side of the door. It's sort of like that. If this universe was spun out of another universe, for instance, do the other universes that have existed for infinity before and infinity after, do they conform to the same laws of physics or do they sort of have their own laws of physics that are different? Well, they probably have their, we think they have the same basic laws of physics, but they could have the same laws of physics and still have very different properties from our universe. For example, they instead of having three spatial dimensions, they might have 17 spatial dimensions. And instead of there being planets and stars, there might just be pure energy. But we do think that they have the same relativity and the same quantum physics that we have in our universe. There's no way we can even contemplate a world or a universe with completely different laws of physics. So you have to distinguish between the laws of physics and, and the parameters that come after that. Believe it or not, that the dimensionality of space is probably an accident. That is, physicists can work out a completely self-consistent theory of a universe that has a different number of dimensions than three spatial dimensions. I mean, I guess that's the sort of thing that's impossible to uh, visualize or understand, but I always hear this, particularly in regards to like string theory, there's like nine dimensions and some are tiny and folded into others and right. whatever. What does that mean though, to have more than three spatial dimensions? I can't, I mean, maybe there is no meaning to it. Well, it could mean there are other dimensions that are curled up into ultra tiny loops that are very, very small. And, and that's why we don't experience them. It could mean that, or it could mean 
it's just a different universe where instead of having three spatial dimensions, you have five spatial dimensions and you can work out what life would be like in that universe. There was a wonderful uh, little book that was written, I think in the late 1800s by Edwin Abbott called Flatland. And I don't know whether you ever heard of yes, it. Yes, I read it when I was a kid actually. Yeah. And, and you, you remember that in that book, Edwin Abbott, who I think was, was a mathematician, but also a writer, imagined what life would be like if we were all two-dimensional and we lived in a two-dimensional world. It, w- it was a fanciful book, yeah. but it, was, it was, uh, showed what a world might be like in two dimensions. And, and, and fiction and writing in general is often a way to explore these ideas that, that again, there's no experiment that can be done. Like you mentioned in the book, you talk about the matrix, which is related to the whole idea that the world we live in is one big simulation. And if you look at it in, in, in certain ways, we've only had technology say for the past 200 years, maybe a little longer, maybe a little less, depending on what you think technology is. Imagine a civilization that has had technology for a billion years. It's not unreasonable to think it could create simulations all the time, an infinite number of simulations, and we're just one of them. And, you know, some people say the odds are that's what happened. What's your stance on that? Well, somehow it doesn't matter to me whether I'm a simulation or not. I don't think it has meaning. I mean, I'll I'll use Descartes' famous line, I think, therefore I am. You know, I know that I'm thinking. And I'm a thinking being. And I have a consciousness. uh, I have a, a sense of making decisions. And it doesn't really matter to me in in terms of my behavior and my thinking of myself, whether I'm a simulation or not. Would would you take the red pill if you were the Keanu Reeves character in The (laughs) Matrix? Like he took the pill and ended up in this really dreary reality. And yes, he knew now what reality was supposedly, but seems like it was much better to just stay in his cubicle. <laughs> I, I would take all the pills I could get hold of because I, I love exploring new things. I love new experiences. I think that every 10 years we should totally reinvent ourselves and do something totally different from what we've done before. So I would take the red pill, the green pill, the blue pill, any other pills that were on there and just see where they took me. What's the last reinvention that you've gone through? The last most recent reinvention is that I'm starting to work on films. And a couple of years ago, a different couple of producers contacted me and wanted to make one of them wanted to make a film based on one of my books. And I thought about it for about 10 minutes and I said, yeah, let's go. So that's a totally new direction for me. We've had to slow down a little bit in the pandemic. We'll start up again in another couple of months. But I've never worked in film before. And. I'm learning a lot of new things and it's a totally different medium than writing. You, you tell a lot of the story with images instead of words and it's a reinventing myself as a film person. The one I'm speaking of is based on uh, searching for stars on an island in Maine. Ah, okay. And I'm working with a producer named Jeffrey Haynes Stiles, who was the original producer for Carl Sagan's Cosmos series years ago. Yeah. Another physicist who wrote a very successful, he wrote only one successful novel. He wasn't really like a writer, 
but he, he actually that's not true. He was a very, he was a great communicator. He was a great communicator. And you're thinking of contact. I yeah, yeah, con uh, contact, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was a very, very interesting guy. I met him uh, at Cornell in the mid 1970s. He was a professor at Cornell for most of his professional life. And I met him when I was there for two years and really enjoyed getting to know him. He died young. Yeah, he had a course at Cornell about ideas, about how to generate ideas. And you had to apply. It's like the only course you had to apply to get into the course. He had to choose you to be in the course. So in, in the book, Probable Impossibilities, what do you think is the most probable impossibility? Like, what do you explore? I mean, you explore all these questions yeah. on infinity, the universe, like yeah. maybe we're traveling, we're going back in time, then forward in time and a circle in time. And it's fun to come up with all these ideas. And maybe the purpose is to kind of exercise thinking about these questions. But what did you want to learn? What, what would you want to learn from, from this? Well, well, you asked me, what is the most probable impossibility? And I can tell you something that, that I believe is absolutely true and yet unfathomable. And that is that every atom in our bodies, except for hydrogen and helium, which are the two smallest and lightest atoms, but every carbon atom, every magnesium atom, every calcium atom was made in a particular star out there that doesn't exist anymore because it blew up and spread all of its atoms into space. But we think that all of the atoms in the universe, other than hydrogen and helium, were manufactured in the nuclear reactions in the centers of stars. And that the heavy, the big stars exploded and spewed their atoms out into space, the ones that they had manufactured. And some of those atoms formed solar systems and planets and oceans and trees and amoebas and porpoises and human beings. And if you could tag each one of your atoms and follow it backwards in time as it, it went through the food that you ate and, and the earth and the soil and the air and the ocean, you kept following it backwards and backwards in time. You were following a particular atom back to the gaseous cloud that formed the solar system. And even back before that, each atom would end up at the center of a particular star. The exact atoms, I'm not speaking metaphorically, the exact atoms, all physicists and astronomers believe that's absolutely true. We've, we've documented it by, by lots and lots of different kinds of, of evidence, but it also seems unfathomable that that, that is really what happened. The more we know, the less important we are. So originally, of course, we thought everything revolved around the earth and that only the area where we lived was the only place on earth that existed. And then, and then we thought everything, okay, there's a solar system and that maybe everything revolves around that. But then we realized more and more, the solar system revolves around the galaxy, the galaxies revolve around their cluster of galaxies, everything 
has a bigger counterpart that it revolves around. And our universe might just be some tiny quark in another universe even. Where does that trend continue? What's how, how far out could that go? What's the next thing? What's the next hurdle we have to revolve around? Well, I think that the idea of the multiverse, that, that there are infinite number of universes that spawn new universes, I think that that's the biggest scale that you can imagine this on. But thinking about how, as you said, that starting with a Copernican revolution, that, that we've gotten smaller and smaller in terms of our place in the universe, I mean, as you said, our planet is orbiting around an ordinary star, which is on the edge of an ordinary galaxy, which is orbiting a bunch of other galaxies, which is one of 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Doesn't that make us feel insignificant? And in, in a way it does, but also in, in another way, the fact that we've been able to imagine all of this and not just imagine it, you know, pulling things out of the air, but, but actually quantitatively imagining it with equations and quantifying it. That seems to me an incredible tribute to the human mind that we're able to, to make these theories and test them that, that are far beyond our human sensory perceptions that are much, much bigger than we are living on this, this one measly planet that we're able to figure this out. Of course, there's still a huge amount that we don't know, but there is a huge amount that we have figured out. That's a pretty magnificent accomplishment of the human mind. So even though we've gotten smaller and smaller in one sense, we've, we've gotten larger and larger in another and, and our ability to comprehend things that are far beyond us. Yeah, what evolutionary purpose does it have for us to, like? Initially, we had to think and reason because we're pretty weak as far as other apes go. We can't win a fight with any other ape, but we can shoot them because we figured that out. What though is the purpose of the book you wrote, Probable Impossibilities? Your mind wanders and you're asking all these impossible to know questions. What do you think is the benefit to you of that and, and for readers of, of also pondering these things alongside of you? I think it expands our imagination that there's an innate quality of human beings, which is curiosity. And I think that that's also associated with high intelligence, curiosity. We want to know what's out there. We want to know what's behind the door. We want to know what's the unseen. We want to see the unseen. And when we're able to do that, to see some of the unseen or to, to look at other galaxies and telescopes, it makes us bigger in a way. It, it expands our presence in the cosmos, not just intellectually, but artistically. I think one of the benefits or the raison d'etre of our science is the same rationale for putting money into museums and ballet companies that, you know, why do we, why do we go to a museum and look at a great painting or why do we watch a ballet? I think it's the same. The answer to that, those questions, whatever the answers are, are the same or the related to the answers of why 
we want to understand the cosmos. Not only the cosmos, but in the kind of an, I don't know if it's on the same spectrum, but you write also about consciousness in the book. You have a beautiful chapter where you talk about everything from Frankenstein to Com Commander Data. And it's funny how, you know, Frankenstein was written in the early 1800s that it's almost like we've been wondering either hopefully or in a scared way, will there be a competitor to our consciousness that we can create? So you go from Frankenstein to Terminator, where those competitors, like Hollywood has this view that if we ever create another form of consciousness, it's gonna turn against us at some point. Mm -hmm. Either it's because it's magnifying our ability to create such a strong consciousness, or we're insecure about our level and that we could create something that says we need to just wipe out these insects so we could thrive. What's your view on this probable impossibility? Is, is this something that, how would we go about creating consciousness? Like, where do you stand on consciousness itself? How did it happen? Well, of course, consciousness is, is fascinates me. It's one of the great mysteries of science. I think neuroscientists and philosophers and psychologists still don't understand how this really unique, this monumentally unique first-person experience we have of being in the world. How can that possibly arise from gooey neurons in the brain? How does that happen? I think that we will be able to eventually create something and it might be artificial intelligence or it might be a multicellular organism that we will be able to create something that has consciousness. Of course, I think I also think that it's impossible to cross that first person, third person divide. So the way that we try to understand consciousness is we look at the at the manifestations of consciousness, the kind of behavior like a dolphin is able to recognize itself in a mirror underwater or a crow is able to play games and solve puzzles. So those are activities that we associate with, with consciousness and higher intelligence. It's probably a continuum, whatever consciousness is. I think that crows are pretty smart, but I think I'm smarter. I think that I have a sense of, of mortality that a crow probably doesn't. So there's probably a continuum of levels of consciousness. And I, I think that at some point that we probably will be able to create a, a, a computer that has enough internal feedback within itself that is able to display the manifestations of consciousness. That's interesting that you just describe it in terms of internal feedback, that basically the ability to kind of meta-analyze the way you analyze the world, at some point there's a tipping point that turns into consciousness. Yeah, well, we know that consciousness is not created, brought about just by the absolute number of neurons because the cerebellum actually has more neurons in the cortex, but it performs very little conscious behavior and mostly unconscious behavior like swallowing, whereas the cortex although it has a smaller number of neurons, has many, many more interconnections between the neurons. So somehow or another, consciousness is associated with the interplay, the interaction between neurons, sending signals back and forth, not just passing them forward, but recycling signals. It's the interplay and the interactions between neurons, the networking of neurons, 
that is somehow connected with the emergence of consciousness. So what you're saying is that the neurons themselves may or may not be interesting, but it's sort of like, a, a, let, let's look at a, a, a human career, like a business career. It's not necessarily your idea like, oh, I came up with a new vacuum cleaner, but it's also your interactions with all the other people involved yeah. in bringing that to life. Yeah. And, and, mm -hmm. and it's interesting kind of looking at these questions because there's analogies often in our practical everyday life. Yeah, it's, it's the interaction. And on a metaphorical level, I think it's, it's the interaction between human beings that give life meaning. You know, I was saying before that, that we've all had transcendent experiences where we feel connected to something larger than ourselves. We also feel connected to other people. And that's part of humanity. It's part of what makes us feel alive. It's part of what makes us satisfied when we're not connected to other human beings. When there aren't these interactions, we, we feel bereft. We feel depressed. We feel lonely. And there are psychiatrists and psychologists who know far about this than I do. The interactions between us, like the, the interactions between neurons, is somehow part of the meaning of it all. It's interesting how these primal laws of, of physics, or at least the history of our understanding of the physical universe, translates into, like you just did, translates into personal happiness when viewed metaphorically. So thinking about like in terms of how we used to think the earth was the center and now we realize we're one galaxy of hundreds of billions of galaxies. I wonder if it's the same on a personal level, you shouldn't try to have the world revolve around your dreams because everybody's got their own dreams. Like you shouldn't try to make everybody else revolve around you and it could keep on going out like that as well, but it's still, you have to hold on to your security. You have to hold on to your you know, your, your sense of confidence, like you said in the beginning about your, your career in writing, you, you had confidence. I wonder what other metaphors like that exist. You mentioned in, in the book, how the body is mostly empty space because of the vast amounts of empty space in a single atom. Right. What's the actual percentage? Like I, I look at you right now and you don't look like empty space. What's the actual percentage of you well, that is nothing? <laughs> Well, okay, well, let me see. I'll have to calculate this because I can't remember it, but the nucleus is, is, is about 10 to the minus 13 centimeters. And an atom is about 10 to the minus eight. So it's about a factor of 10 to the fifth. So in terms of volume, it would be one part and 10 to the 15th would be the actual stuff, one part and one with 14 zeros after it would be the amount of stuff compared to the amount of empty space. That's, that's, that's unbelievable because then why do our eye, but I guess it's, well, why do our eyes put it together and ignore that empty space? Why aren't I just looking at a ghost right now? Well, because, because the, each atom, which is mostly empty space, as you said, has electrons in the outer part of the atom. And even though those electrons are not occupying much space, they're creating electricity and magnetism. And that electricity and magnetism created by the electrons 
exerts a force on everything around it and can also stimulate um, nerve cells uh, and the the receptors in your eyes and, and cause all other kinds of effects. So there's an electrical field around each one of those electrons that in a sense occupies a much bigger space than the electron itself. Wow, so so it's interesting. I didn't really think of it that way that this one property of electrons, which is essentially that it's it's sort of like um like an, an egotistical view, like the electron out of all other particles wants people to notice it. <laughs> and so that is what our eyes notice. All electrically charged particles do that. The proton at the center of the atom is a positively charged particle and it does the same thing, but it, it stays at the center of the atom whereas the electron is, is out in the bleachers. Its ability to project this electrical force is having an impact over much, much larger volume than its actual size. And that's why even though we're, we're mostly empty space, that empty space has a lot of the consequences of solid matter because it's, it's the, those electrical forces that are projected by the electrons. And even on a, on a super large scale, and again, I'm referring to a chapter in the book, on a super large scale, the cosmic background radiation is this plasma of electrically charged particles, and it's so dense, we can't see past yeah. it. We can't see, for instance, what happened in the first 300,000 years of the universe. We're always going to have to theorize, possibly, right. about what happened. Right. Well, the cosmic background radiation is actually not electrons, it's radio waves, but everything else you said is correct. It does fill up the entire universe and uh, it tells us something about the early universe. Right, and, and potentially before that, like there's all sorts of questions, not only did space exist before the universe started, but did time exist before the, the universe? Time exists, right. It's one of the other probable impossibilities. The interesting thing about the word probable is that you can make a conjecture but you won't know. That's why you have to say probable. Yeah, this probable impossibility that I was talking about that every atom in our body came from a particular star, I would bet lots and lots of money that that's true. Right. We can't prove it because we can't trace our atoms back in time, but all of our physics and astronomy would have to be wrong if that were not true. So what I love about this book is that just like this conversation, the questions only lead to more questions. Just the way you were just describing where one part in 10 to the 15th real and the rest is, is nothing. When we get a new piece of knowledge, we add to our ever-increasing knowledge one part, but then we have 10 to the 15 more new questions. things we don't know, <laughs> more impossibilities. Yeah. We don't know yeah. so many things about, like you said, in, infinity or, or the infinitely small. And I appreciate this book for just the questions it raises, the storytelling and the style it's written in. And it does make you think, it does make you be, you can't help but be curious when reading this. So I, I definitely, it's it's a such a great book, The Probable Impossibilities by Alan Lightman. One final question that I've been really curious about lately, particularly with scientists, is Let's say you had to go back in time 1,000 years, kind of like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, the book by Mark Twain. Mm. Uh, what could you do? Are you useful? 
Like I would say about myself, I can't really do anything. If I was sent back a thousand years and they said, show us something that you could do. I can't, I, maybe the best thing is I could, I could do is I could say, wash your hands and you'll get sick less. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing useful I could bring from now to then. And in part, because maybe I've outsourced so much of my intelligence to right. artificial means like the internet. Well, all of us, I mean, that's true for almost all of us. If I were an experimental physicist instead of a theoretical physicist, and I'm not an experimental physicist because I'm a disaster in the laboratory, which I've learned in college, I think a, a, an experimental scientist, or especially physicist, could do something a thousand years ago, could find the materials to build something unusual that those people had never seen. There's very little that I could do, if I remembered my history well enough, I might be able to predict something that was gonna happen the next year or the next few years. And that would earn me a few brownie points if I could do that. Right, but I, I could tell you, uh, nobody can do that. <laughs> like if you landed in 1115, for, as an example, what's gonna happen any time in the next 100 years? 1215 is the Magna Carta. What right. happened in the 100 years before that? Can you name one event? I can't. I knew okay. about the Magna Carta, but I'm sure there are a lot of historians who could tell you what happened in that hundred years, or at least a few things. Um, of course, you, in order to impress those people in the year uh, 1015, you'd want to be able to predict something that was in the near future. Right. And that would certainly get you a lot of credit. You'd probably be burned at the stake as a witch if you did that. Right, that's the other issue about being better than them. Right, you, they you, might, want to that. Keep, you might want to keep it to yourself. Right, but then they'll kill you for other reasons because <laughs> you're useless. So, um, but again, uh, Alan Lightman, such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I viscerally remember taking Einstein's dreams out of the library and then returning it. For some reason, I remember these two events very well. And uh, it was just as much a pleasure reading this book 30 years later, almost 30 years later, as it was reading reading that book and finally getting to talk to you. Well, thank you, James. It's a pleasure talking to you. You're, you're a very interesting guy and you have a lot to say about different subjects. So I've, I've enjoyed the conversation also. Thanks so much. Come on the podcast for your next book. Just keep on okay. coming on. We'll, go, we'll okay. talk about the movie next time. Okay, invite me and I'll come. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.